Hi, Anishri. Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and demystify why people do what they do. Uh, as we march into the AI revolution, we discover that CI, career intelligence, is at an all-time low. So we speak to a wide range of leaders. So uh, tell us a bit about uh, what you do today, and uh, we'll reflect on your journey in the next 30 minutes. Uh, thanks, Utkarsh. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Thank you for having me here. Um, so I'm currently the CEO and founding team member of Adhyayan Foundation, which is a not-for-profit that builds the capacity of state governments to improve the quality of government schools through data-driven governance. Uh, and Adhyayan operates on the premise that uh, when leaders in education spaces begin to develop a shared understanding of what good schools look like and start measuring the same continuously, schools begin to improve. Um, so I've been an educator for the last 10 years and I've worked in East Asia, the US and India and uh, started from a space of being interested in education and spaces of violence. And uh, now I sort of focus on education and systemic reform, which is what we do at Adhyayan today. Seems like a simple <laughs> problem to solve, right? <laughs> yeah. So One way to look at challenges and opportunities in this space. What specific instance or motivation led you uh, to Adhyan? Sure. Um, so I moved back to India about four years ago, and uh, I had been in the education space for some time at that point. And um, I think I came back to India wanting a few things from the career I took on next, which was that, one, I felt like uh, the work in the education space was very piecemeal. Uh, so people seem to be solving specific problems, like taking teacher training and trying to solve that, or taking literacy and numeracy and trying to solve that. And uh, in the bargain, that larger context of um, the interconnections between these spaces was getting lost, and everybody seemed to be working in silos. So I knew that whatever I wanted to do had to be systemic in nature, and that built connections between these different spaces in education. Um, and I think another thing that I that really sort of uh, bothered me in the social sector and in the education space was that very often interventions never took into consideration the voices of the end beneficiary or the stakeholders who you served. Um, and interventions were developed without their input. So I also knew that whatever I did, I wanted to make sure that stakeholders had a voice. Um, and so at that point in time, I started shadowing various organizations in India. And I um, came across Adhyan at that point, uh, which was founded by Kavita Anand in 2012. And they were working in the private school space, getting private school leaders and their stakeholders to learn how to measure what good schools look like using quality frameworks and benchmarks. Um, and starting to themselves reflect on where they stood in terms of school quality. Um, and at that point, Kavita was also trying to set up a not-for-profit arm to the organization with the view of being able to work with government at scale. Um, and that's when I met her and I said, I'm super excited to be able to do something like this that's systemic in nature. Um, and uh, we decided that, okay, we'd set this up from scratch, the not-for-profit arm, and, and see how we could work with government. Um, and I think it's important at this point to sort of understand um, some larger things that were happening in the education landscape that um, led us to do our work the way we do it. Um, one was that uh, everybody, like donors, and a, a lot of the focus was on scale 
and scale was uh, the, the road to scale was through government and the public education system. But I think something that we recognized was that um, public schooling was the only education space in India that could be referred to as a system. Uh, because it had an internal hierarchy of accountability, which private schools didn't have. Um, and also the fact that um, um, public schools serve about 72% of India's kids. So that was one. I think the second thing that we were very conscious of when we were setting up the foundation was that um, the discourse globally and um, nationally was moving away from looking at improving infrastructure in schools and improving enrollment and um, uh, pass rates and things like that towards improving school quality. And while uh, enrollment and attendance rates and pass rates and infrastructure are all very tangible and countable, school quality was not something that people had a shared understanding of how to measure or even to think about. What does it mean to say that a child is learning, that a teacher is facilitating a classroom where children are active learners, how do you even begin to understand that and then measure it? Um, and then the third thing we were noticing when we were setting this up was that um, the investment in India and in education had uh, steadily been rising for the last decade or so, with about 35% uh, of uh, CSR funding going towards uh, education, um, while the outcomes over the last decade had been dropping. So right from literacy and numeracy data, if you look at the ASAR uh, studies, or if you look at the National Achievement Survey that's run by the government, you were seeing grade, the, the outcomes of students from grade three to grade eight were dropping. Um, so it was in this backdrop that we were setting up Adhyayan Foundation with uh, the idea that you have to help people in this evolving context of what does school quality mean? You have to help them develop a common language and vocabulary to measure it. And who did you have to convince most? Uh, who was the hardest person or organization to convince? I think so. I think there are two sets of people that are hard to convince. One is donors, and one is governments, uh, because everybody still has a little bit of the hangover of what's been happening for the last few decades of pumping money into infrastructure, pumping money into getting kids back into school, uh, getting kids to pass in tenth grade. Um, so I think when it comes to governments, you see a little bit of that still there. While they do want to move towards improving quality and they are open, I think building advocacy around what does it mean when you talk about school quality. And I think with donors, um, I think the focus sort of started uh, moving towards um, how do we measure school quality? Let's look at students' uh, marks. So let's look at literacy and numeracy scores. And that makes the discourse very narrow. If you're only going to talk about quality in terms of being able to read and write or do math, uh, when we know that you know 50% of the kids who are in kindergarten today uh, will be applying to jobs that don't even exist today. Um, so yeah. what is it that we're really setting up our schools for? And that must not have been an easy conversation, right? Because most of the available research seems to uh, share that by grade two or three, your level of math and English by and large dictates where you end up academically. It, they are really studies uh, that show correlation between, you know, foundational understanding of math and English versus the overall income. So how did you specifically go about changing the minds of your most stringent uh, critics? 
Um, so I think um, it's an ongoing process. I won't say that we've changed everyone's minds, but I think there are two ways to approach that, right? One is that literacy and numeracy, of course, it's important, but it's not the only factor. There's a lot of research that also shows that people's uh, networks are what their social capital is actually what helps them get into the spaces that they get into. So even if I was from a low income community and I had the same literacy and numeracy ability as somebody who was from a higher income community, I'm not going to be able to compete with that person without the same social capital, right? And without those other, the other types of exposure that person has and the other types of skills that person has. Um, that's one. Two, that, um, you know, the ability for, of somebody to read, write, express themselves uh, cannot only be measured through paper and pen tests. And there is enough research to support that as well. So starting to say that don't discard uh, reading and writing and math. I think all of that is important, but that can't be the sole uh, thing that an entire system focuses on, because if they do, then what happens is everybody starts teaching to the test and you end up with students who are uh, being trained to regurgitate content rather than think and have the skills that will be necessary when they uh, graduate right. from school. Right. 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 So this is really interesting. So you went about like uh, engaging with stakeholders um, and then what was this? Uh, next step of setting this organization um, or transforming this organization to its next phase? Um, so I think we're still very young. We started in 2017. And I think our first phase, of course, was getting buy-in, like you said, from donors and uh, states. And I think we were able to do that uh, to start out with um, and get people on board to this idea. And increasingly, there are people in the ecosystem who are interested in looking at education in a more holistic manner. Um, I think now we're at a place where we have been able to prove our model to an extent in a state like uh, Goa. So Goa has been one of the states that we've worked with and we've had a lot of support from the leadership there, which is very progressive. Um, and starting to say now, how do you take this and translate this to different parts of the country um, and getting um, this model to be something that can be scaled and uh, replicated? And talk to us about the financial aspects of this program. Like, what are your goals for the coming three to five years? How much money do you need? How, what kind of people do you need to come on board to realize this mission? And uh, what are some things that you still haven't uh, uh, decided, but you're open to suggestions? Um, so I think uh, in the next uh, three to five years, we're looking to be present in about three to five more states, uh, starting to get them to look at this idea of uh, quality assurance and how does everybody in the education ecosystem learn how to measure what a good school is continuously and um, start focusing on impact rather than inputs. Um, so I think that's been one big thing that we're looking at, like building advocacy around how do you move people away from an input heavy understanding of uh, school quality to an outcome and impact focused understanding of school quality. Um, I think in terms of um, the money, um, so, so far uh, we have um, received funding from um, institutional donors as well as individuals and um, and to some extent from government as well. Uh, and it costs us about, um, say, 18,000 to our uh, school cost is about 18,000. Um, so when we look at like a unit of about 1,000 schools, that costs us roughly in the range of about 1.5 to 2 crores. 
Um, and I think in terms of what you were asking of what types of people we need, um, I think um, we're looking for people who are really interested in, uh, in systemic um, uh, reform. Uh, we're also interested in people who are um, not very prescriptive in nature when they um, work in these spaces, but take an approach of being collaborators with the state that you're working with, uh, leveraging existing expertise within those systems, um, also, people who do, of course, have someone of a background in education or the development sector. Um, so that's pretty much the type of people we look for. And also people who are very comfortable with unpredictable spaces, because working with government uh, means that there are a lot of moving pieces and you have to be very open to being able to pivot quickly and work in a very dynamic space. Oh, that sounds oh, that's interesting. Um, when you when when an institutional funder invests you, um, what kind of metrics does he or she look at or monitor closely? And uh, is that how do you get alignment towards it? So I think this is again part of the larger advocacy we want to build because institutional funders typically do want you to show how your intervention results in learning outcomes improving, which is literacy, numeracy, things like that. Um, but I think because our intervention is very uh, measurable, because it's all about getting entire systems to look at quality frameworks and measure themselves, one metric that we do sort of uh, um, a, a report on and that we sort of look to deliver is uh, for schools to move on any two quality standards in a particular framework by the end of the year. So say about in year one of an intervention to have about 20 to 30 percent schools show that improvement and in year two to have about 75 percent to 100 percent schools show that kind of improvement that's measurable on a quality benchmark. Got it. Got it. Um, and just like if you, you're a Columbia grad, you grew up in Hong Kong. Tell us how you thought about education when you were, say, a Teach for India at Columbia all while growing up in Hong Kong. And uh, how different or similar is it to the real world that you encounter now? Um. So I actually grew up in Delhi. I did my undergrad in Hong Kong and had a lot of I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong growing up because my dad was there. Um, but um, I think um, in, when I was an undergrad, I actually um, had the I was very interested in uh, spaces of violence, I told you, right, in context of violence. And um, I think um, I was um, um, sort of I worked with the, uh, with refugees on the Thai Burma border at that point in time. And it was a program that was an education program that was looking to deliver uh, support all these uh, asylum seekers as well as refugees um, to learn English so that when they get resettled to an English speaking country, they'd be able to adapt. Um, and we were sort of there to deliver that program. And um, I think one of the things I realized when I was there was when I walked into the classroom on the first day, all these students were about my age. I was about 19. And um, we used to play this game as a warm-up where we would sit in a circle and uh, you had to say something that everybody had in common. And if they had that thing in common, they would stand up and, you know, just, uh, switch places. So, for example, if you have black hair, stand up and switch places. And I started out with innocuous examples like that. And the students would uh, say things like, oh, if your village was burned, stand up and change places. If uh, your parent was killed, stand up and change places. 
And I think that was really sort of shocking to me um, to sort of see them. And they would all be laughing and running around and changing places. And I think um, the what I found really interesting about that space was that there was such a disconnect between the service providers in that space who were trying to teach people English, move them out, and literally treating them like cattle almost, to the reality of the people who were there and their lives and what the violence of what they'd experienced had done to them and how they saw their own lives. Um, so I think that was something that really stayed with me over there that you know, it's really important that those who are meant to receive interventions have a voice and are seen as human um, in the entire process. Um, I think at Columbia, by the time I got there, um, I was working with um, survivors of gender violence um, when I worked in New York. And uh, when I was in grad school, um, I think one of the things that struck me was um, that, you know, you're in these very elite spaces where you're talking about development and social justice, uh, but you don't really see representation of any of the groups that you're really talking about, or barely, you barely see any representation. And um, and I think that, again, was something that I struggled with a little bit. Like, while I think it was a great space where I got to explore ideas of, you know, power and uh, structural inequality and what that means in an education system, I also felt like I just didn't see too many people around me who represented some of those um, spaces. And um, so I feel like that was something that I had been thinking about for a while uh, as I was looking to come back to India and work in education. Um, and I think um, when, I, um, when I worked in, in New York, I think what struck me was that uh, I was running a, an education program for an organization that uh, served survivors of gender violence. And my role was to help them. Um, uh, our program supported them with becoming economically empowered because the state, uh, New York City didn't have the ability to keep people in public housing um, anymore because public housing was full. And there's a separate quota for survivors of gender violence. And uh, so our job was to help them become uh, ready for career track jobs so that they could move out of the public housing system and not depend on welfare anymore. And uh, my role over there was to support with uh, building their um, uh, sort of um, literacy skills in one sense. Um, but I think a big part of it was that um, we were dealing with uh, minority communities in the U.S., uh, typically uh, Black Americans and Hispanic, uh, the Hispanic community, and a lot of immigrants. And uh, it wasn't just about saying, can we help you read and write better, because you have to go into a career track job that needs you to read and write, but also are we helping you, um, equipping you with some of the cultural capital that you're going to need when you walk into some of these spaces, right? Because for a lot of these people, um, they didn't feel like they were entitled for career track jobs. They always felt like they have to work in a McDonald's or a Burger King, some kind of um, job that was a minimum wage job. They, even if they were smart, they didn't think that they were entitled to work in spaces like say a JP Morgan. Um, and so I think my big learning in that space was that, you know, it's one thing to teach people to read and write and develop those skills, but it's also important to sort of build that sense of entitlement and that sense of confidence that, you know, you you can um, you can work in spaces with others as an equal. 
um, yeah. That is such a profound thought. I mean, <clears throat> I couldn't agree with you more that uh, we need to start looking at education uh, in a more holistic way. And uh, some of the steps that you've outlined are so real on a day to day basis in India. All you need to do is to go to a lower middle income school and ask the kids what happened last evening. Um, yeah. Tell us uh, a little more about uh, uh, when you engage with uh, with the kids today. Are you seeing any change because uh, from the time when you were a teacher, how many years have passed and uh, what are specific measures that you're taking to bring students, their parents, or the wider stakeholder community onto the table? Um, I mean, you mentioned it initially. I'd love to know the specific things you're doing. Um, so I think since I I was a teacher in India about 10 years ago, and I um, honestly, if you look at classrooms in, in India, uh, they haven't changed over the last 200 years, right? Um, so I think you pretty much, you do walk into a lot of spaces and you still see children sitting in rows, copying things from the board, a lot of focus on the completion of syllabus. Um, so you still see all of that. Um, but I think, uh, I think the credit I would want to give government school teachers especially is that they are very skilled. And um, I think what we have uh, learned and I think what we believe in is that um, you know, they're going to give you what you ask for. So if the leadership in a system only asks them to report on infrastructure data and ask them to report on syllabus completion, that's what they'll do and that's what they'll report on. But if you tell them that, you know, I expect your classrooms to be active and engaged, I expect to see children speaking, discussing things, engaging with each other, you'll see that, right? And I think uh, we have experienced that in the last few years wherein when the leadership in a state starts getting involved and starts asking the right kinds of questions of teachers, you do see classrooms becoming more active, student-led, where you hear them speak, you hear them being part of you know, their own learning journey. Um, in terms of what we do to bring stakeholders onto the table is, is the way we set up the process, is that we say that from the start, if you want schools and entire system to improve, where there are so many moving pieces and so many stakeholders, all those stakeholders have to share an understanding of what a good school is, right? Um, so when the first thing that we always do with the system is we support them in learning how to evaluate themselves. And the evaluation teams typically consist of students, parents, teachers, the school leader, as well as like um, uh, system leaders like inspectors and district officers. So that's one big way in which all stakeholders come onto the table and collectively rate their own school and say, where do we stand? And then when the school decides to use that data to move forward, uh, they are part of that process of saying, what should the next steps be? What's the most frustrating part of your job and what's the most exciting part of your job? <laughs> um, I think there's so much that's exciting about my job because I think when you set something up, um, it's, it's, there's always something new that you're dealing with every day. Um, so I think right from being able to hire a team to start working with a state from scratch, learning their, about their systems and how they work uh, is super exciting. And also like when you walk into schools and you see things work, when you see, you know, we set up professional learning communities of educators. Um, that look at data and improve and like work on improving. And um, I remember when we first 
start out this process typically you know people are really lost and they're trying to debate and discuss what you know what does it mean when you're saying a classroom is active and children are working in a group to when you see them like several months later and they've all developed a shared understanding um like it's almost like you become invisible they don't even need you to explain anything anymore they're talking to each other they're excited about what they're doing next like sort of like you know the way you set up network capital with that idea that you can leverage the collective wisdom in a group i think watching that play out is is super exciting when you see people share resources bring expertise to the table and like solve their own problems i think that's super exciting to see and as well as to grow a team has been super exciting um i think what i find frustrating about my job is i think what i was saying um is that when i see that the system you know the discourse becomes very hung up on on standardized testing and is all about uh, you know uh, looking at that as a measure of success um i think i find that frustrating um and i think the only way to deal with that is to try to build advocacy and a voice around the alternative to that um and i think um also i sometimes do find it frustrating when the sector can be a little prescriptive in nature and a sort of uh, determine what needs to be done because i think there's such a big push for scale in india at the moment that that scale sometimes comes at the expense of uh, those you're working with uh, because then decisions have to be made quickly at a very high level and then just rolled out so i think that can be a little frustrating at times uh, but i think on the whole, whole i find my job very exciting absolutely wonderful um the passion speaks um tell me about uh, if you were to you know go back in time and give yourself advice um what would what advice would you give to your 18 year old self um what could you have done and uh, what advice would you have for young professionals who are trying to make a tangible difference in the education landscape today um i think the advice i would give myself at 18 is that um it's okay to fail um i think i grew up um sort of always wanting to achieve and do well and and needing to meet certain expectations and and i think that sometimes boxes you boxes you in um and 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 um it it doesn't really prepare you for the real world because i think in the last few years as i've had to set this organization up it's only been a lot of failing and learning and failing and learning and you have to have really thick skin right um so i think i would tell my 18 year old self that it's okay to fail and that it is so important to have thick skin um and if you really believe in something to do it and it's okay if it it's not um it's not something that's safe um so i think that's what i would say to myself um i think for professionals entering education um i think i would say two things one if you come from a place of privilege um because that's the social sector actually tends to have a lot of that because you tend to have professionals who are willing to take a pay cut or willing to work for less money because they have some amount of cushioning um so if you're walking into the social sector and you are privileged i would say that um think about the power you bring into these spaces and the influence you have because uh, sometimes you can have an influence that you don't realize and you can just move uh, people in a certain direction so for example when i was teaching 10 years ago 
uh, I felt like the parents wanted the kids in that low-income school to be just like me, to speak English like me. And it was almost like they didn't want their kids to be like them. And there was a little bit of shame attached to who they were. Uh, and I think that you have to be really aware of that and counter that narrative when you're walking into the space. Um, and I think the other thing to know that there's a lot of expertise that exists and you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just have to create spaces and curate spaces where people can share learning and uh, develop collaborative solutions. Um, and I think the last thing I would say is that to think of whatever work you do as part of a larger value chain. Uh, there are many different paths to education in India at the moment. Uh, some people work in teacher training, some people work in leadership, some people work in assessments. So know what part of the value chain you fit into and how can you connect with other parts of that value chain to create more cohesive, uh, comprehensive solutions. Uh, you mentioned something so important about uh, the people working in the social space today. Um, tell us more about how such people can be aware of the power and privilege they bring to the table. And there's no point being ashamed of the privilege if you can redistribute it or make something useful out of it. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Um, so I think to uh, like whenever you walk into a space to sort of start by listening to who you work with um, rather than kind of already having assessed the situation and saying this is what you're going to do. I think uh, the first thing is to start by listening to the people who are there and seeing what their experience is. Because, uh, you know, very often, especially when you work in something like a government system, um, people already know what's the right way to approach something because they've experienced it. And so to trust that wisdom and to go with that. Um, so I think like listening is really important if you want to be aware of your privilege and not taking up too much space, because I think the tendency sometimes is to go in and because you have a certain exposure and a certain education, you're taken seriously and you ask for your opinions. And to rather than start by giving advice or, or sharing that, to start with questions and really listen uh, and also to actually try to take a little bit of time to understand the historical context of the space that you're working in. Right. I think, well, are you working in an urban space with migrants? Are you working in an area that has had an Adivasi population for really long? Um, like what kind of historical context does that space have? And everything that you do, are you working in a space that's had military conflict, right? And uh, has um, experienced oppression through, say, like state instruments and maybe wary. So like understanding the historical context of the space that you're working in and asking a lot of questions. What about the case in which you disagree with the government, but you have to work with the government? This can be at the state level, international level, interna uh, national level, what have you. I mean, I'm not talking about a particular government. I'm asking about a, a hypothetical scenario. Where if you disagree with the government, what do you do? Disagree with, say, the policies of the government in general, say, in the education space. And if the if you believe that the government is approaching the education problem in 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 a less optimal way than one would have hoped, but you still need to work with them, what would you do or what do you do? And this is, of course, at a meta level, this is not specific to any government in general. Um. So I think... Um... The thing is, um, you know, when, you, when you're in grad school, you're allowed to like read a lot of different types of things and then you theoretically deconstruct it and break it down, right? And I feel like um, 
when you come into the real world and you work with systems as complex as this, you realize that it's 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 not all black and white. It's pretty gray. And um, I think that um, something it's important to sort of create in the work that you do lots of spaces of dialogue where you can really understand the point of view of the people you're working with and why they feel a certain way. Um, and I also feel like when it comes to building advocacy, it can't be that you sort of try to influence them, but rather how do you collectively sort of support everybody to talk to each other and create spaces of dialogue? Because I think at the end of the day, civil society organizations are external, right? And we are not part of the system per se. And if anything has to be sustainable, it has there has to be buy-in from within a system. So how do you create spaces where different points of view and perspectives get represented and people can talk to each other. How do you also create spaces where a data and uh, uh, objective data can be presented and be looked at in, in, um, in making decisions? Um, and I think uh, another thing that I, um, uh, like, you know, there's a lot of research that's, that shows you that when you want to convince somebody if they believe something, um, you can't, like, no matter how, many, how much, like rational data you put in front of them or rationally you argue with them if they believe in something very strongly. One of the things that finally does convince people is when somebody they trust tells them something, right? Um, so how do you then create a champions and allies in different spaces who can then speak um, for, a, a, for a more sort of, um, you know, future facing education system? You talked about data in the education space. Um, mm -hmm. In India, based on your experience, have you found that there is intelligent use of uh, data to make informed choices in the education space yet? If uh, I'd love your comment on that and if you have any example to share, we'd love to. Um, yeah, so um, when it comes to the use of data in education in India, uh, the ASAR survey did a really good job of um, bringing to the forefront the crisis in uh, reading and writing across the country uh, by getting everybody to look at that data across the country. Uh, prior to that, uh, the data that has existed for a long time in the government education system has been around infrastructure, around the demographic information of students, um, as well as uh, the number of trainings a teacher would have attended. But there was very little data on learning outcomes. And so the ASAL framework did a really good job of uh, bringing that to the forefront. Um, now, increasingly, you are seeing uh, frameworks come into existence, uh, like uh, PGI and SECI, that not only look at learning outcome data, uh, but also look at things like governance um, and a few other parameters like that. Um, they Typically, what tends to happen is this data gets collected and it gets sent to the center um, and you get this cumulative analysis of a state. Very rarely do you see states and their stakeholders at the level of the district, block, cluster and school actually looking at that data, analyzing it and saying, what can we do to move forward? Um, and I think that's something that we've been uh, attempting in Goa, uh, wherein where the state was very keen on being able to see data in real time and use that to make decisions. So uh, in Goa, we've seen um, 
district level officers use the data to decide what training needs to happen in different professional learning communities. We've seen uh, professional learning communities of schools using that data to uh, decide what their next steps are going to be and what they need to share with each other. Um, we also see the state looking at larger data and sort of saying, uh, you know, uh, which uh, the block needs what kind of support. Um, so we're seeing that, but it's 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 not the norm. Though currently there is um, um, the mandate under the national education policy, which just came out, which says that every state should be um, using a quality framework to assess its progress and the progress of all its schools. Uh, so increasingly, you'll start seeing that happening in India. Okay, wonderful. Let's try and end on a on an optimistic note, on a forward-looking note. Um, talk to us about your vision for 2030. All big challenges take decades to solve, but uh, assuming that you're going to be working on it uh, with as much energy as you are today in 2030, how do you see what's the realistic picture for India and the Indian education system? Um, so I think something I do feel optimistic about for 2030 is that I think you will start seeing NGOs and donors collaborating in a way where, um, you know, they think of problems that are in, in, in a manner that's systemic and start deliberately and intentionally looking at interventions that complement each other and that can work together to solve a larger problem. Um, so I do hope to be able to see that in 2030. Uh, I also hope to be able to see more and more, maybe like a third or half of state governments in the country actually uh, using quality assurance mechanisms to see where their schools are at and then using data to say, you know, how do we make our schools better? And not focusing on inputs, but really focusing on impact and the quality of teaching and learning um, in schools. Uh, I also hope to see like a, um, a growth in the research base around education, because I think slowly organizations and donors are moving towards that. And not just third party assessments of NGOs, but actual research that's being done to say what are the levers of change when it comes to large education systems. Um, and I think there are two questions um, that I we are sort of struggling with at the moment, but not struggling with, but actually thinking about, which I would hope to have some answers to. One, which is what does it take to build an intervention that's sustainable, where not-for-profits and civil society can exit and allow a system like a government system to use all of that? And how do you make some of these things? How do you institutionalize some of these things? How do you build sustainability? Um, and I think another one that I um, sort of am thinking about um, is, um, you know, very often in India, you're told to look at other models, global models, and said, you know, they had a certain learning curve, and we don't have to go through all of that. We can pick up from where they've, what everything they've learned and take it and move forward. Um, and Sometimes we wonder, you know, is it is it possible to really compress somebody's learning curve? Uh, because sometimes a system has to experience certain things and certain challenges to learn from it. Um, so I think um, sustainability and the idea of a learning curve are the things that I the questions I hope to be able to answer in the next 10 years. But um, I think looking at a much more uh, collaborative um, impact focused um, education space where all stakeholders are um, thinking about making change visible. Um, I think that is something that I'm looking forward to. Super. And if people want to find out more about what you're doing or work with your organization, uh, what's the best way to go about it? 
are you hiring currently if yes for what role um so if you want to find out more about us you can go to our website uh, you can look up adhyayan quality education foundation and you should get enough information on us we also have a youtube channel with a lot of the work that we do which is also under adhyayan quality education foundation uh, we will be hiring pretty soon as we're looking to expand to other states so anybody in the space of education or the social sector who's worked uh, who's interested in system systemic reform um and is interested in working with uh, leadership in education um i think we'd be more than happy to uh, have you attend wonderful keep doing the awesome work that you're doing thank you so much for your time uh, it was really a pleasure to see that uh, there are organizations who are looking at education in such a um, broad sense we appreciate it and uh, look forward to being in touch